So this evening we're going to be talking about rebirth, and uh, rebirth is something which is extremely central and important in Buddhism, and I think it's very important to acknowledge that. Let's first look at why it's important, evidence why it's important. If we look at the Lam Rim, the graded stages of motivation along the path, we speak about three levels of motivation. First level is to aim for uh, a fortunate rebirth. Now, if we don't believe that there is such a thing as rebirth, then uh, why would we possibly aim for uh, a more fortunate one? It wouldn't make any sense. Second level is that we're aiming for uh, liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from uncontrollably recurring rebirth. So uh, if uh, we don't believe that rebirth exists, why would we want to get liberated from it? It wouldn't be an issue at all. And if we look at the advanced level of motivation, then we're aiming to uh, become a Buddha, and we're aiming for that uh, in order to be able to help everybody else overcome and uh, get liberated from uncontrollably recurring rebirth. So this is the way that it's actually presented in the teachings. And again, we wouldn't want to be able to uh, help everybody overcome rebirth if we didn't believe in rebirth. Now, a lot of people uh, tend to uh, serve Dharma light, you know, like Coca-Cola light. And so we water down the, uh, these levels of motivation, and instead of aiming for a more fortunate rebirth, we uh, aim for just making things better in this life. And instead of getting liberated from uh, uncontrollably recurring rebirth, well, just get liberated from all the difficulties that we have in this life. And uh, becoming enlightened is not to uh, liberate everybody else from uncontrollably recurring rebirth, but to liberate everybody else from their problems in this life. This is Dharma light. Some people, of course, prefer Dharma light, but it's not the real thing. And although Dharma light may be uh, helpful, beneficial, certainly one does gain uh, benefits from uh, practicing in this way without taking into consideration rebirth, it tends to resemble therapy trying to make things better in this life and uh, not have problems in this life. So it's a little bit like therapy. Then social work, we're going to go out and help others get rid of their problems in this life. Very nice. Buddhism has uh, a lot of uh, very helpful suggestions that can be of benefit in a process of therapy and training for social work. But uh, I think this is really short-changing Buddhism. Buddhism speaks about much more than this. So we need to uh, appreciate why it's so important to work on ourselves uh, within the context of rebirth. First of all, why would we want to work for a uh, more fortunate rebirth? Buddhism is not talking about being reborn in heaven and uh, and everything is going to be really nice and wonderful and we'll have eternal happiness. That is not the aim of getting a more fortunate rebirth in Buddhism. But rather, what it's saying is that We're working on ourselves to try to develop ourselves, to overcome our problems, our confusion, and realize our potentials. And uh, this is a very long process. The chances are that we're not going to finish it in this lifetime. And so it's something that we want to continue. It's not like we're running a race and we just want to see how far we get before we drop dead. We want to reach the end of the race. So... We want to be able to continue all the way to the end of our goals. And uh, if we don't finish in this lifetime, then we would like to have a fortunate rebirth with the circumstances to be able to continue. So to give us some sort of hope that it is possible to reach these goals, it's very important to 
think in terms of rebirth, because chances are it's going to take a lot of lifetimes to reach the goals. Also, in uh, Tantra, we want to get enlightenment in this lifetime. And a lot of people prefer Tantra for that reason, because they think, well, we're not talking about rebirth. We uh, don't have to think of that because we're going to get it in this life. But, again, chances are we're not going to reach enlightenment in this lifetime. That's extremely rare. And also, we want to be able to continue. So, again, we would want to have fortunate rebirths. And if we look at the uh, procedure in uh, the highest class of uh, Tantra, in that we work to purify the uh, process of death, bardo, and rebirth. Bardo is the in-between state between death and rebirth. And uh, we have a very detailed analysis of uh, how that process works. And uh, we practice in imitation of the process of death, bardo, and rebirth. So if we don't actually uh, believe that rebirth takes place, why in the world would we want to practice purifying death, bardo, and rebirth? What in the world are we doing? Without conviction and rebirth, the whole tantra practice becomes uh, a game. So that's one point. The second point, why uh, it uh, is so important to think in terms of rebirth, is for gaining a proper understanding of karma. That first point was that we need to uh, think in terms of getting fortunate rebirths to be able to continue on the path if we don't finish. The second point is we need it for the understanding of karma. That's because the results of our actions mostly do not ripen in this lifetime practicing really hard and meditating every day and doing prostration and all these sort of things, and we get cancer and die. And so uh, we can get very discouraged if we expect that the results of our actions are going to ripen in this lifetime. And then we look at a corrupt official cheating everybody and becoming fabulously rich, and they don't get caught. And they live their whole lives in uh, extreme wealth and power. So where's karma? doesn't have to be a government official. It can be a business person. <laughs> no names. Some of our actions may ripen in this lifetime, especially when they're done with an extremely, extremely strong motivation, but most of them ripen in future lives, whether it's positive or negative. I mean, there are certain things that we do in this lifetime, like build a house, and then you experience living in the house, which is a result of building the house. We shouldn't think that cause and effect doesn't work at all in this lifetime. But we can work very hard and get a very good university education, and we don't get a job. So uh, it doesn't follow cause and effect that you get a good education, that you can get a job. Whether you get a job or not is dependent on many other karmic factors from previous lives. So it's very important for uh, the understanding of karma and cause and effect to think in terms of rebirth. It's not that it's helpful. It's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, the whole thing does not make sense at all, the discussion of behavioral cause and effect. Otherwise, uh, we're left with a, uh, a very different view of what happens in life. You went to the university, and uh, you got a job or you didn't get a job. Well, what did that depend on? Either it depended on luck, or it depended on God's will. And since uh, Buddhism says that there are many problems in terms of both of those possibilities, then the discussion of rebirth and past lives and so on is the only real uh, way of explaining it. Not only that it makes sense, but that gives us some uh, way to affect what happens to us in the future. That's the important thing. I mean, you could live thinking that everything that happens is uh, just on the basis of luck or God's will. And there are certainly many societies that think that way. 
but that doesn't leave very much room to take responsibility oneself for what happens. The next point why rebirth is important is in terms of the meditations for developing love and compassion, starting with recognizing everybody as our mothers in previous lives. The full Dharma version <laughs> is they've been our mothers in previous lives. Dharma light version is that, well, anybody could take us home and uh, be kind to us and give us a place to stay and feed us like a mother would do. Anybody in this room, anybody on the street, anybody could be like that. And the Dharma light version is very helpful and it enables us to uh, see that everybody has the possibility to be kind to us yeah. and that we could be like that to anybody as well. We could take anybody home into our house and feed them. Right? Opens our heart out to others, but it opens our hearts out to other people. And even within people, it is limited pretty much to grown-ups. You don't quite see that the baby could take you home and take care of you and feed you. The baby could act like my mother. But the serious limitation here is what about the cockroaches? Can you see that the cockroach can uh, be like a mother to me and take me home and feed me? And uh, that I could be like a mother to the cockroach and take the cockroach home and uh, give it a nice place to sleep and feed it? No, that's Dharma light. The disadvantage of Dharma light. So, although uh, there's no need to throw away Dharma light, it has serious limitations, and that's not really getting us into the full scope of the Buddhist vision, opening our hearts up to all beings, not just adult humans. The next point is that if we think just in terms of uh, this lifetime, then uh, we tend to identify quite strongly with our own situation. That we are young, we are old, that we are a man, that we are a woman, that we are Mexican, that we are German, that we are African. We tend to identify with uh, our own situation. And it's not so easy to empathize with other situations. We tend to feel I can only really relate to other Mexicans or other people from my religious background, or I can only really relate to people my own age or my own sex. It's absolutely normal that people think like that. But if we think in terms of rebirth, then uh, we've been every age. Sometimes we've been young, sometimes we've been old. We've been uh, both uh, male and female. We've been uh, different types of uh, nationalities. We've been <laughs> different life forms, not always human. And so because we have a much broader concept of ourselves, then it allows us much more easily to develop compassion for others in situations that are different from what we're in right now. And we don't tend so much to identify solidly with what we are now as our solid identity. Because we've been so many different life forms, etc., it helps us uh, to understand more easily the teachings on voidness, that we have no solid, permanent identity. Further point <laughs> is that when we think of rebirth, that implies beginningless mind. And for understanding what mind is and what its cause is, and therefore for uh, understanding the voidness of the mind, the mind doesn't exist in impossible ways, you need the understanding of rebirth. If we think that mind only exists in this lifetime, then we have a, a big problem in terms of what is the cause of the mind. Then it starts to really affect our understanding of uh, voidness, how the mind exists. 
So, for uh, all these many, many reasons, the uh, understanding of the Buddhist explanation of rebirth is really very, very central and important to full Buddhism, despite the the fact that uh, some people in the West teach Dharma light. If we look at taking refuge, putting a safe direction in our life, as we discussed, this is not at all the first step that we take on the uh, path of Dharma. This is a very, very advanced step. And developing the initial level motivation in terms of the graded stages of the path, in other words, the motivation to work for a more fortunate rebirth, that also is obviously not the place that we start as Westerners. We were speaking last time about the four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma. Well, what about for the first thought that uh, turns our mind, uh, thinking about appreciating the precious human life that we have? Think about it. How can you really appreciate that we have a precious human life if it were not possible that we could have had another type of life, another type of rebirth? There are many, many, many possibilities of different types of rebirth And we were able to get this one, which is a precious human rebirth, and it's unbelievably rare. We've had all sorts of other rebirths in the past, and now we've gotten this special one, and it's not going to be easy to find again. Look at the example that Shantideva uses to uh, explain it. The example of the blind sea turtle that stays underwater for a hundred years and uh, only comes up uh, once every hundred years, and there's a golden yoke floating on the ocean, and the chances of getting the precious human life is as rare as that turtle coming to the surface and sticking its head through that yoke. So, even the first thought to turn our mind to the Dharma, appreciating the precious human life, is founded on rebirth. So, in order to start turning our minds to the Dharma, we need a certain prerequisite state of mind, which is taken for granted in a traditionally Buddhist society. And that prerequisite, I would assert, is that we need to acknowledge the central important place that uh, rebirth plays in Buddhism. We need to have interest and the intention to understand the Buddhist explanation of it, not some other explanation of it, but how Buddhism explains it. Because there are many other explanations of rebirth and afterlife, and Buddhism has its own special way of understanding it. And all the Dharma teachings are in terms of the Buddhist explanation of it. People in traditional Buddhist societies may not understand rebirth in a very sophisticated level, but they certainly think in terms of the existence of rebirth, and they would be interested to learn more. So, when we say that we need to uh, be interested in learning the Buddhist explanation, then we need to exclude what it's not. Buddhism is not saying that rebirth is in terms of uh, some sort of permanent soul that leaves the body and goes into a next body. That's not the Buddhist understanding. Nor is the Buddhist understanding that we are dealt lessons to learn from some higher being or higher authority, like being dealt cards in a hand, and once we learn our lesson, then we'll go on to a better rebirth, and we'll continue to have a rebirth in the same situation till we learn our lesson. And uh, implicit in that explanation is that rebirth is constantly getting better and better and better. Once you learn this lesson, then you go on to a higher state and learn the next lesson. So that's not the Buddhist understanding at all. Nor is it that uh, there's just one afterlife, and that rebirth takes place just once after uh, this life, and then it's eternal. 
whether or not we had purgatory uh, before it. That's not the Buddhist understanding either. So, we need to uh, have a very open mind and interest in what actually is the Buddhist understanding of rebirth. The issue of rebirth is one of continuity. Continuity is the continuation of something from moment to moment. We have four possibilities of continuities. We can have a continuity that has a beginning and has an end. For example, this body that we have now has a beginning when we are conceived and it's going to end when we die. And it continues from moment to moment while we're alive. Easy, right? Then we can have continuities that have no beginning but have an end. For example, confusion or samsara. Confusion and samsara have no beginning, but they can have an end. The third possibility is that something has a beginning, but no end. For example, the disintegration of the glass. When I break the glass, that disintegration, that ending of the glass, has a beginning. It starts when the glass breaks, and it has no end. It's going to go on forever. That glass will always be broken. In a million years in the future, that glass is still broken. It's not going to come back. So it has a beginning, but no end. It starts to become a little bit freaky, doesn't it? Ya se están poniendo nerviosos. This is Buddhist logic. Then, the fourth possibility is that something can have no beginning and no end. The mind stream is an example of something which has no beginning and no end. So, this is what we need to understand when we are working with rebirth. We are working with a continuity of the mind that has no beginning and no end. We're not talking here about uncontrollably recurring rebirth, which is samsara. That has no beginning, but it has an end. We're talking just about continuity of the mind that goes beyond samsara. Even when one is liberated from samsara, continues. So, no beginning and no end. In order to understand this, we have to understand what does Buddhism mean by mind? What is it that has no beginning and has no end? So, to make a, a long story short, what we mean by mind in Buddhism is the mental activity of experiencing things. So, it's experiencing, not experience, experiencing as an activity, an ongoing activity. And it is individual and subjective and unbroken. We uh, experience waking up, we experience everything during the day, we experience sleeping, we experience uh, dreaming, we experience dying. All the thoughts, everything we see, everything we hear, there's experiencing that. And all of that experiencing is individual, my experience, not your experience. It's subjective from uh, our individual point of view, and it's unbroken. It's not that you go to sleep and you stop experiencing experience being asleep. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about a continuity. Continuity of individual, subjective experiencing of things. It's not that we're accumulating experiences. It's the active process of experiencing. And that is what continues with no beginning and no end. Individual, subjective experiencing of things. And there are many of them. A countless number of them, of these individual, subjective streams of experiencing things. So, that's what we're talking about that continues. So now we have four possibilities of how does it continue. 
Does it have a beginning and an end? Does it have no beginning and an end? Does it have a beginning and no end? Or does it have no beginning and no end? Right? Okay. Is it like our body? Is it like confusion? Is it like the uh, disintegration of the glass? Or is it something else with no beginning and no end? Continuities need to continue as the same category of phenomenon. Otherwise, it's not a continuity. That's just definition. So, let us look at examples so that we understand what it's talking about. One category of phenomenon would be physical phenomenon, matter and energy. That's one category of phenomenon. So, we can have a uh, continuity of physical things, and the continuity will be of things in the same category. They'll all be physical or energy things. A seed can transform into a tree that can change into wood, that can transform into a table. A table can transform into fire and ashes. So there's a continuity here of similar category of phenomenon. Then we can also talk about subjective individual experiencing of things. Interest that can turn into attention, then uh, that can turn into uh, annoyance, you don't like it anymore, that can turn into boredom, that can turn into tiredness. So, like this, each of these are phenomenon in the same category. They are all individual, subjective ways of experiencing something. So that's a very different category of phenomenon than uh, something that's physical. Anger cannot transform into a table, and wood cannot transform into anger. That's very profound, actually. It underlines the fact that we're talking about something quite different it's from right. physical things. When we're talking about mind, we're not talking about the brain and the chemical processes and the electrical processes. We're not talking about that. We're yeah. talking about individual subjective experiencing of things. We're not talking about one chemical situation and the brain changing into another chemical situation. Things have to continue in the same category of phenomenon. Then, if that's the case, how does the continuity work? How do we relate this to our life and rebirth? What are we talking about here? We can have a model according to, if it were a continuity, of physical phenomenon. If you speak of a physical continuity, there can be the sperm and the egg of the parents transform into the body of the baby, and the body of the baby transforms into the body of the adult, and part of that body of the adult, the sperm or the egg, transforms together with something else into uh, the body of the next generation. So is that what is happening? When we talk about rebirth, is it just from one generation to another, or what? Because body is a continuity from the parents. The genetic code, all that sort of stuff, that is a continuity from parents. You don't have to think of previous lives to explain that. But is it the same with experiencing? Individual subjective experiencing. But is it the same with experiencing? Individual subjective experiencing. Think about that. Is it? Our parents' experience... Part of that becomes our experience, and so, our experience will continue because part of our experience will become our children's experience. Is it, it the same thing? Think about it. Well, we could say part of it, if we're talking about experiences, like you're accumulating experiences. Our parents experienced the uh, Second World War and the Depression, and we can learn from their experience something and it has affected our lives. But we're not talking about that. 
We're talking about individuals subjectively experiencing things, not experiences. Now, we could say that our being able to experience things individually follows from the fact that our parents were able to experience things individually. Because our parents experienced being alive, we can experience being alive. If our mm-hmm. parents didn't experience life, we wouldn't be able to experience life. So you could say that. The Buddhist method is to explore all the possibilities. It's very important to do that. Okay, so it's not that. The point is that our parents' individual subjective experiencing of things does not change into our individual subjective experiencing of things. We experience the exact same thing that our parents experienced, but in a different way. Because our experience is individual and subjective, and it's not a transformation of our parents' individual subjective experiencing of the same thing. You follow? That's really very important. Because that's the way that we disprove that mind comes from the parents, the way that the body comes from the parents. If you just leave it with the words mind and body, forget it. It doesn't make any sense. My individual subjective experiencing of things is not a continuity of my parents' individual subjective experiencing of things. Let that sink in for a moment. Experiencing is individual and subjective. Okay, does it make sense? So then, the next question is, as for our own individual subjective experiencing of things, which continues every moment of our life, does it start from nothing and end with no result? Does it just start from nothing and end with nothing? Does it have an absolute beginning, and before that there's nothing, it's totally non-existent? And does it have an absolute end when we die, and afterwards it's nothing that follows from it? It didn't come from our parents, it didn't come from anybody else. So, did it come from nothing? Did it have a beginning that way? That doesn't make any sense either. Why? We can uh, look at this in terms of what drives the continuity from moment to moment. Buddhism says that we have something called the compulsive impulse to continue to live in the 12 links of dependent arising. This is the link that's usually translated as becoming, a vague word to call it. So there's this impulse, it's compulsive, it's automatically there, to continue to live, to continue experiencing more things. You stick your head under water, for example, why do you take it out? because you want to continue experiencing things. And even if uh, you want to kill yourself by sticking your head in a sink full of water, that's almost impossible to do without putting a a heavy rock on your head. (laughs) Because uh, instinctively, compulsively, automatically, it's a reflex. You take your head out of the water. It's a reflex to take your hand out of the fire. It's part of our whole being, that reflex. This is the classic argument that's given in the text. Moment one produces moment two, and moment two produces moment three. Because of this compulsive impulse to continue, then why shouldn't moment three produce moment four? It makes absolutely no sense that there's no continuation of the continuity. 
because we're not talking about the continuity of the physical basis. That's something in a completely different category. The body may not be able to support the experiencing of something, but we're talking about a different continuity. We're talking about the continuity of experiencing subjectively, individually, something. That moment we're talking about is a moment of death. Remember, we said that wood cannot produce anger, cannot transform into anger. We can get angry with a piece of wood, but that's different. So, likewise, the physical body cannot transform into subjective experiencing of something. We can experience something based on having a body, but the body doesn't transform into experiencing something. So, that's similar. If we don't have wood, if wood is no longer present, that's not a reason for saying that you can't have anger, because the anger is coming from something else. You may not be able to get angry at that piece of wood if the wood isn't there, but uh, that doesn't mean that you can't have anger. So, just because the body is no longer functioning, the brain is no longer functioning, doesn't mean that there's no continuity of experiencing, subjectively experiencing, because we may not have experience of, of things based on chemical stuff that's happening in the brain, but it could be based on something else. It's not that chemical interaction that transforms into the experiencing. So the only thing that logically follows is that because that moment of death has that compulsive impulse to continue, it's going to produce another moment of individual subjective experiencing of things, even if it's no longer on the basis of this physical body. And the exact same argument goes for the beginning. If we say that experiences of things starts only with the presence of the joined sperm and egg, it's very difficult to say when exactly it would start. But let's say we say that it starts at that moment of conception. It's very hard to say that, well, it didn't exist before because there was no joined sperm and egg to support it. So the only conclusion that we can come to that's logical is that the first moment of subjectively experiencing things on the basis of this physical body, that is the successive moment from a moment beforehand of subjectively, individually experiencing things not on the basis of this body. The same thing with last moment of uh, death. The only logical thing is it produces the next moment of continuity of the same individual subjective experiencing. Why? Because... Both the first moment of a lifetime and the last moment of a lifetime both have compulsive impulse to continue existing. So cause and effect makes no sense if this works in a cause and effect sequence throughout our life, but not a cause and effect sequence of the first moment or the last moment. Survival instinct. So, these are the uh, logical arguments that we need to work with. Now... We're talking about the continuity of individual subjective experiencing of things. Well, what is this subjective aspect? There are two models, two possibilities. There may be more, but we can talk about two. Two possible models of how a continuity with a subjective aspect to it could continue. There's two possibilities. One possibility would be like a conveyor belt, the moving belt at the airport that carries your luggage. So uh, there's continuity of experiencing, which is like the continuity of this moving uh, belt, and that me, that's the focus of the subjective aspect, is like a piece of luggage moving on this belt. 
experiencing things, experiencing, experiencing, moment to moment, and there's some thing which is there being carried along, which is me, and that is making it individually my experience, my individual experiencing of things. That's not the way it is, according to the Buddhist understanding. The other model is the model of a movie, motion picture. Motion picture, there is a continuity of the uh, frames. We're not talking about the, the physical basis, the actual film, but when it's being projected, the movie is one moment after another moment after another moment, but there's nothing solid which is staying there and remaining the same, going through the whole thing. But movies are individual, aren't they? And we can label the movie, for instance, Star Wars. There's no little stamp Star Wars that's there in every moment of the uh, projection. Star Wars is just a conventional way of referring to this continuity of scenes. It's a way of defining or describing the individuality of this movie. So, the conventional me is just like Star Wars. There's a continuity of individual experiencing things, and if we want to put it together and describe and uh, define the individuality of that, we would say, me, not you, me. Now, Star Wars is not the title Star Wars, is it? It's the movie, what the title refers to. So, similarly, me is not just a word, but it's what the word refers to, it's what the label refers to. So, that's how we define or describe the individuality, me. So we can label it me. So, when there is an individual subjective experiencing of things, it arises or happens with the feeling of a solid me, separate from the experience who's experiencing it. Now I'm experiencing uh, a good mood, or now I'm experiencing a bad mood. Now I'm experiencing happiness, now I'm experiencing unhappiness. It feels like that, doesn't it? But there's no such findable thing. It just feels like that because of confusion. Or to be more precise, because of confusion, we believe that I actually exist. And it's because of the habit of confusion that we feel like that. It feels as though there's a solid me, separate and experiencing the experience. So, since there's no such findable thing as a solid me, separate from experiencing, and which is doing the experiencing, that separate me, solid me, has no solid permanent identity as a human being, or as a male, or as a female, or as a cockroach, or whatever, although it's individual. It's a very important distinction between having a permanent identity and being individual. I'm not you. My experiencing is not my parents' experiencing. But it's over a zillion lifetimes, and that individual experiencing isn't set as being a human one, or a male one, or a cockroach one, or a female one. But it's individual. And the type of body that it is based on in any particular lifetime, well, that's the result of karma, of actions. What do you do with experience? So, when we talk about rebirth, what is it that continues from life to life? The Buddhist uh, way of understanding. It's the individual subjective experiencing of things. That phenomenon goes on from lifetime to lifetime with a conventional me as what can be labeled onto it to organize and refer to it. This experiencing of things is according to karmic potentials, tendencies, and habits. So that's also continuing. If we look at the explanation in Highest Tantra, we talk about different levels of experiencing things. And so we speak of the subtlest 
level of experiencing things that's sometimes called the clear light mind. And uh, also there's the subtlest energy which supports the experiencing of things. This is what continues. It's these two things, basically. The subtlest level of experiencing and the subtlest energy that supports the experiencing. And conventional me can refer to that, uh, to its individuality, in terms of the convention me. So that's what continues. No beginning, no end. But also from no beginning, coming with it is confusion and what comes from that, the karmic potentials, tendencies, and habits. It's the karmic things come from the confusion. But that confusion and the karmic potentials, tendencies, and habits, all of those, although it has no beginning, can have an end. They can be separated out because you can have the, that experiencing of things with understanding of reality, which is the exact opponent of experiencing things with confusion. So, even though confusion has no beginning, and is part of this package, it can be gotten rid of, so it can have an end, because it can be replaced in such a way that it doesn't return. So, when we're talking about rebirth, uncontrollably recurring rebirth is with this confusion and all the karmic stuff that has no beginning but can have an end, Whereas when we talk in general about continuity of mind, that goes into enlightenment as well, free from the confusion and the karma. So if we can start to think like this in terms of beginningless and endless continuity of subjectively, individually experiencing things, then if we don't get rid of the confusion that's with it in this particular little lifetime, then, well, of course, we want to continue, because it will continue. So we want to get the best circumstances to be able to work on it further. And if we're able to see the whole continuity, at least conceptually, of many, many different lifetimes, then the whole teaching's on karma. Subjectively, what I'm experiencing, type of rebirth and so on, is individual based on karma, my previous actions. This is a result of actions from many, many lifetimes, coming with all this karmic potentials. And if uh, we understand this continuity individual experiencing things, that it doesn't have a solid identity, and neither does anybody else's. If it doesn't have a solid identity for me, then it doesn't have a solid identity for anybody else. So this other being does not have the solid identity of being a cockroach. It's uh, an individual that has been in many, many different life forms, and so obviously could have been my mother. Because of its karma, it happens to now have a connection with the cockroach body. And we undoubtedly have been a cockroach at some time as well, so we can empathize with uh, the suffering of a cockroach. And when we understand that this individual, subjective experiencing of things doesn't have a solid identity, then that understanding will get rid of the confusion that's coming along with the continuity and all the karmic junk. So we can see that when we get into this understanding of rebirth, what actually means in Buddhism That's one of the basic keys for everything. Everything is built on that. First, we need to acknowledge the importance of rebirth. Then we need to be open to understanding it and want to understand it. Next, we get an intellectual understanding of it. But we don't want to leave it at that. We want to get a gut, visceral understanding of it. I should say, not only understanding, but conviction. We go from an intellectual understanding and conviction to a gut-level understanding and conviction. So, what's the difference between the intellectual and the gut level? Those are Western categories. Buddhism doesn't talk in those categories. That's because we have a big difference between mind and emotions. 
in our Western concept of uh, reality. And we experience it that way. We do experience a difference between intellectual and emotional understandings and Most conviction. Different. But how does Buddhism analysis look at that so it gives us some clue as to how to go from the intellectual to the gut level? The difference between the two is not the difference between a conceptual understanding and a non-conceptual understanding that really is not correct. Conceptual just means that we perceive it through an idea of what it means. Non-conceptual means that you don't have to use an idea to perceive it. So it has nothing to do with the difference between intellectual and visceral. We can have the visceral feeling based on an idea of what rebirth is. So, thing is that when we get thorough familiarity with rebirth, with the understanding of rebirth, and seeing these things this way, when we're thoroughly familiar with that from meditation, familiarizing ourselves from practicing seeing things that way, then that way of viewing things will automatically and spontaneously arise. Automatically, we'll see things in terms of individual subjective continuity of experiencing, not just a woman or a man or a cockroach or whatever, and toward ourselves as well. So automatically, we will see others and ourselves like this, spontaneously, because it's so familiar. But they automatically appear like that. People, beings, automatically appear like that. They seem like that. It's not that they're appearing from their side. They appear. In Western way of saying it, our mind makes it appear, but it's not that the mind is something that makes it appear that way. But automatically, that appearance is going to arise. That's part of the experience of them. And what does that mean? What are we describing? We are describing a feeling of rebirth. It automatically arises as part of the experience that this is an individual subjective continuity of experience, whatever. I mean, it's a lot of words. But uh, if it automatically arises as part of the experience, it feels like that. So if beings and ourself are not automatically appearing this way, then that's intellectual understanding and conviction. I mean, it's intellectual understanding, and then it's an intellectual conviction based on that. And if it automatically and spontaneously arises like this, then that's a gut visceral feeling, because it feels like that. It feels that this is really the way it is. So, going from an intellectual understanding to a gut understanding, and an intellectual conviction to a gut conviction, is not something which happens just magically. It's not just, well, go from conceptual to non-conceptual, so just stop thinking. Just become intuitive and go into some sort of vague, magical thing of just intuitively feel it. But... Going from that intellectual level to the gut level is simply the product of familiarity with seeing these things with conviction that comes from meditating. Meditating is practicing seeing this all the time. So don't worry if you only have an intellectual understanding. That's great. Don't worry about that. A lot of people complain, I only have an intellectual understanding. It's a great accomplishment to have an intellectual understanding. So the point is to meditate, to familiarize ourselves, to see things that way over and over again. Not just sitting in your meditation, but uh, seeing the people on the street, seeing the people in your house, seeing the cockroaches in the garden, seeing everybody. And through that repeated familiarization, eventually, automatically, things will appear that way and it will feel like that. So you could ask, Isn't that brainwashing? And you'd have to say that, yes, the process of brainwashing with, let's say, communist propaganda 
and brainwashing with Buddhist propaganda is the same. And you'd have to say that, yes, the process of brainwashing with, let's say, communist propaganda and brainwashing with Buddhist propaganda is the same. Because after a while, you really feel that the communist propaganda, if you've seen that all your life and you really have gotten into it, you really feel Tibet is part of China. So it's very important not to say that, well, if I really feel it on a gut level, intuitively, then it's true. There's a big difference between the Buddhist brainwashing and the communist brainwashing. Remember we spoke about the difference between confusion and understanding. When we examine correct understanding, it can be validated. It stands up. The more and more we examine it, the more we see that it is true, and the more that it uh, brings happiness. And the more we examine confusion, the more we see that it doesn't stand up. It's not true. And thinking that way with confusion brings unhappiness and suffering to self and others. So, there's a big difference between the Buddhist brainwashing and the communist Chinese brainwashing. Although, you could get to a visceral feeling and understanding of anything through familiarity, one has to examine very carefully what is it that we want to get a visceral feeling and conviction in. Also, the brainwashing, the communist Chinese form of it, is motivated by somebody else. It's not self-motivated. The Buddhist is self-motivated based on understanding and compassion. And so it's quite different from that perspective as well. So, the understanding and conviction in rebirth is not a negative type of brainwashing that uh, we are being told to uh, do this so that you'll be a good boy and a good girl and you'll go to heaven, otherwise you'll go to hell. It's not this type of brainwashing. Rather, it is based on understanding the importance of rebirth and importance of uh, correct understanding of the Buddhist explanation of it and Baba. conviction that it actually is true. And we understand, we see, what are the benefits of uh, uh, seeing things this way and feeling this way in terms of karma, in terms of compassion for everybody, in terms of liberation, etc. And based on that, then we work to familiarize ourselves with it. It's not a negative brainwashing, but it is a familiarization process. That's meditation. It's self-motivated, based on compassion, based on seeing the beneficial results. Then once we can actually understand what we're talking about with rebirth, and, you know, really feel that very strongly, then we can work on getting that continuity free from confusion, free from all this karmic potentials and stuff, so that eventually our individual subjective experiences of things will be free of suffering, because it's free of the causes of suffering, which is confusion. And in this way, we will experience things with happiness ourselves, and we will be in the best position to be able to bring others to this type of experiencing of things as well. Something to think about, obviously. But uh, hopefully, with this type of uh, presentation and outline, it gives you a clearer idea of how to approach the subject. And if at the end of this lecture, you come away with at least the feeling that, yes, rebirth is a very important thing in Buddhism, and I don't want to just have Dharma light, but uh, let's get the real thing. With appreciation of that importance, then you have some more interest to go and really work with this material, because it really is central. 
And when we talk about rebirth, we're not talking about a mystery. We're talking about something which is really quite logical and reasonable. It's not simple, but it's understandable. And the process of getting to the gut-level feeling of it is a process that can happen. It's not that it's just going to be good luck or whatever. I mean, it's, it's worked out how to do it. Well, it's well, not well, a process well, of well, hallelujah, now I believe. What questions do you have? Well, what's the place of uh, memory in all of this? The way that memory continues from one lifetime to another is similar to the way that habits continue from one lifetime to another. The way that memories continue within one lifetime as well. It's the same process, not only from one lifetime to another lifetime, but within one lifetime or from one lifetime to another lifetime, the mechanism of continuity of memories and of habits is the same. It's not that memories or habits are little things which are sitting inside our head. They exist by mental labeling. It's a conventional way of organizing repetitive patterns of similar events. Drank coffee two days ago in the morning, drank it yesterday in the morning, drank it today in the morning. How do we organize those similar events into a pattern? We say, well, there's a habit of Go drinking on. coffee in the morning. And uh, that habit does exist, but it's uh, just a way of organizing, a way of referring. Okay. And it's not just the word habit. Three days ago, you said something to me. Two days ago, I thought about it. Yesterday, I thought about it. Today, I thought about it. So how can we organize and explain these similar events? who would say, well, there's a memory of it. But the memory is not something sitting in our head which pops up uh, like a cuckoo out of a clock. It's a habit of uh, repeating a similar way of thinking or feeling or could be on any level. With continuity of experiencing things, the memories continue the same way as habits do. But they're not an inherent part of it. When we die and there is no more the basis for supporting the mainstream, what does it prevent our mindstream not to get uh, mixed with other mindstreams. There's no gross physical basis for uh, the mindstream, but there's the subtle basis, the subtlest energy. So that maintains the individuality. Maybe we should. We can end here. So we uh, end with the dedication. I think whatever understanding and insight we might have gained, even if it was very, very small, may that go deeper and deeper so that it generates more interest, more intention to uh, really look at this topic much more seriously so that eventually we can get a correct understanding and a gut-level understanding and conviction in rebirth fully integrated into our whole way of viewing and feeling how things are in the world of this understanding for ourselves and to be able to bring benefits to others. Thank you very much.